Hi everyone, welcome back to TVP. This year is our 10th birthday, believe it or not. Not as a podcast, but as a value franchise here at Schroeder's. We wanted to celebrate this in the pod by having a sort of party with some of our longest standing clients and past podcast guests by inviting them in and flipping the table. Usually on the pod, we interview people from all walks of life on their expertise. But in this mini series called Meet the Manager, our guests and clients are going to interview us instead and finally ask those burning questions that have been brewing over the past 10 years. We'll be releasing this mini series on the off weeks from our regular content, which we'll publish as normal. But we hope you enjoyed this limited series where we place the value franchise in the interviewee seat as a birthday treat. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to sectors, countries, stocks, or securities are for illustrative purposes only, and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instrument, securities, or adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, and welcome back to our Meet the Manager series. This week we have our guest host, John Husselby, interviewing the co-head of the value team, Kevin Murphy. John is the head of the multi-asset team at Lion Trust with 38 years of experience managing multi-asset and multi-manager funds and portfolios. Before Lion Trust, he was a co-founder and the CIO of North Investment Partners, a specialist boutique which provided bespoke outsourced managed solutions. Before that, he was the director of multi-manager investments at Henderson. Our interviewee this week is Kevin Murphy, the co-head of the value team at Schroeder's. He's been managing portfolios here since 2006, but he's been at Schroeder's since 2000, when he got his start in the UK equity fund team as an analyst for construction and building materials. In this episode, John and Kevin will discuss a great background on Kevin, following all the way from childhood to co-heading the value team, the decisions and challenges in building a franchise and value investing 10 years ago, challenges of value investing through a hard 2019 straight into COVID in 2020, and then the worst decline in value style in 100 years, how the value team avoided style drift even in the worst bits of the pandemic, and finally, how to keep an investment framework loyal to its underlying philosophy while evolving as markets change. Enjoy. Hello, Kevin. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, John. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. I have to say it's quite a privilege to be sitting on this seat and uh, guest hosting uh, a conversation of of which we've had many over the years anyway, really. Um, And I think the conversation that we haven't had, uh, me being a fund selector, and I've always been keen to explore, is the investment mind, the personality, but in particular, the motivation of successful fund managers and fund management teams. And, um, you know, I'm interested today to explore that a little bit. Now, in preparation for uh, the meeting today, I did the, the usual thing uh, in Googling you and uh, <laughs> looking for past interviews. I get some clues and think, well, which angle can I go for? And I only found out three things. And uh, so I'm going to do a bit of a fact check to start with. So yeah. first of all, you studied uh, economics at Manchester University. Yeah. Uh, secondly, I think you're married on the basis that your picture on LinkedIn looks like it was your your wedding day. Yeah. Um, See, a bit spooky this, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and then finally, you uh, you play or you have a passion for basketball. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're the three things. But beyond that, I think you've sort of tended to, I suppose, shy away, I suppose, uh, from that that thing. But I, that sort of personal thing, and, and I appreciate that. But 
I think today, if you could just share a little bit about, uh, I said, you know, perhaps from your childhood, you know, through to the current day in terms of, uh, you know, growing up and your sort of ambitions uh, and, as I said, that development of investment mind. So, so let's start with the uh, the eighties and nineties and what was it like growing up and, and where did you grow up? So you're right. I've totally shied away from all of these kind of personal questions in the past. As I figure, I'm not that important. I'm not that interesting. We'll stick to the funds and the process and. And that's a thing. But uh, as you're such a good friend, and I'm happy to go through this with and you. And no one else is going to know either, are they? No, I mean, no, it's, right. it's fine. <laughs> it's just between us. <laughs> so I was born and raised in the UK, in Oxford. My parents are originally from Northern Ireland and were very firmly, strongly Irish. So we hung out with other Irish families and Irish communities, went to Irish pubs, listened to Irish music. All our holidays were back to Ireland. Right. And it was always, we were here temporarily before going back. But they left it a little bit too long for me in that uh, I clearly have a strong English accent. Yep. So they were 18, I was 18 when they moved back. Uh, but my siblings and my parents all have strong Irish accents. So I'm very firmly the black sheep of the family in that regard. And it's very confusing for people who meet my brother, uh, who is also in the industry, and maybe we'll talk about that a bit yeah. later. But he has a strong Irish accent. I don't. And people just can't understand how this has happened when two siblings uh, look similar but sound so different. But it was because I, basically I was left behind when my parents went back home. So um, what was there any connections to the city? What did your, your parents yeah. do? What professions were they in? Well, no, absolutely no connections to the city at all. My parents are both very working class. My mum had to leave school at 14 to... Uh, to get a job and to help raise the family. And then when she was working, uh, she went to night school, gradually did her qualifications, GCSEs and A-level equivalents, uh, got into nursing, oh, wow. carried on uh, learning, got, got her master's and then went into teaching about nursing, then became the head of the department of nursing and then moved back to Ireland to be the, uh, the head of nursing for the whole of the country. Um, so, uh, nothing to do with the city, but an impressively useful emphasis on the benefit of education. Mm, mm. And my dad, when he was at university, uh, got into programming computers a bit as part of his degree. And so he had a front row seat in the 1970s, 1980s about computers, which was about to be the biggest boom in the whole mm, world. Yeah. And so he was an IT consultant, probably the only IT consultant in the world who absolutely despises computers in every single way. Like he was useless at computers, didn't know anything mm -hmm. about actual computers, mm -hmm. but he could program them. And so that was it. that was his career for, for, for most of his working life. So as a child, what sort of hobbies did you have? Were you, you into collecting stamps, milk bottle tops or uh, anything, <laughs> like, anything bizarre like that that we no, could, no, you could not, share well, with us? Nothing or? too bizarre. I was into Lego and, uh, and you know, so I'm a massive geek. Lego and reading when I was right. really when I was younger. I'd go to the library on a Saturday morning, take out my full allocation of books, which was yeah. five or Benjamin was. Graham. <laughs> Not at that point. <laughs> right, Famous okay. five and junk like that. <laughs> right. And then I'd have read them all by Saturday afternoon. Right. Okay. Um, and so I'm I'm quite I can be quite focused in what I'm doing, and I would get the book. I'd sit there and I'd just plow through it. Next one. Da, da, da. Yeah. Um, and then as I got older, I got more into sports. And so, as you correctly say, basketball was my one true sporting love, yeah. but alongside that, mountain biking right. as okay. well. So that was what I would spend my, from my teenage years onwards, it was yeah. mainly the sporting side, basketball okay. and mountain biking. 
and school, probably secondary school rather than yeah. sort of uh, any sort of uh, before that preschool. What what did you sort of enjoy there? What did you excel at in terms of subjects, in terms of academia? Um, well, my school wasn't a very good one in that it closed shortly after I left for for failing to meet its academic standards requirement. And it, it so the things you remember from it are the bad behaviour, the fighting, the the poor teaching standards. But it, it it was extraordinarily useful for a couple of things. So the first is the friends that I made then are yep. still some of my best friends now. My best man at my wedding, as you correctly say, there's a photo of it on my LinkedIn. Uh, one, my best man was my best friend from school. Yeah, and that's quite a challenge, isn't it? Because you know, I'm obviously a generation a bit uh, ahead of you in that respect. But I assume growing up, there was no, you know, uh, there's no social media then. Yeah. There was no WhatsApp groups, was there, yeah, in, right. in, in terms of that. So keeping those friends, they are friends because yeah. you'd have to keep in contact with them all over yeah, the years right. as well. Well, it helps that both of us are entirely useless at keeping in contact. Yeah, right. And so neither of <laughs> us feel the need to phone every day or every month or whatever it is. We'll phone up occasionally and say, do you want to meet up? And then we'll yeah. go to the pub. Uh, yeah. And and that suits both of us. And But there's a group of people, like 10 or so, people that when I go back to Oxford yeah. we'll all go out still and it's great fun. Fantastic. Uh, but in terms of in terms of the subjects because it wasn't a great school you didn't have to work very hard to be towards the top of the class yeah. Yeah. and that was extraordinarily helpful longer term because it teaches you being a small a, a big fish in a small pond or however you want to phrase it yeah. teaches you a degree of self-confidence and self-belief that has been extremely useful um, in in my profession and working in the city and Ultimately, uh, I think probably it was actually a good school for me to go to because it taught me lots and lots about life that I wouldn't have learned otherwise. Mm. Can you uh, think of any aspect that, you know, take an example of that in terms of your working uh, sort of life today? Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's just that independent of thought, that re- ability to just sit down and work yeah. through a problem yourself because, frankly, the, the teachers aren't going to teach it to you. So yeah. you have to go and work out how to learn. Yeah. And you make your first steps at doing that when you're in secondary school. And at university, that was yeah, a different... That's, that's a, yeah, yeah, that's a mouse, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, that's right. And and ultimately, that's what I learned at university was how to learn yeah. uh, rather than anything else. Yeah. Um, but that journey and that transition has been uh, extremely yeah. beneficial, ultimately. I often ask um, people I interview, you know, did you go to school with any famous people, celebrities, etc.? But I'm assuming probably a few boxes, the way you're talking. <laughs> yeah, my school's more famous, more infamous for the for its uh, uh, ex-pupils than it is famous, I'm afraid. <laughs> so no, no, no celebrities or any, anything okay. else. When it came to, so further education. So first of all, you have your choice of A-levels, which, you know, again, Unlike you know my kids today, that you know the choice they have is pretty endless, I suppose. But mm. I suppose it's fairly limited for yourself. But what was your thinking then? And did you have really any thoughts that you know the city's for me? I want to be an investment no. manager, or you know, were you a sort of you know uh, in the spaceman and sort of you know uh-huh. farmer or, or yeah. whatever you, yeah. know, you wanted to be in that well, respect? So when I was selecting A levels, uh, I selected computer studies because uh, right. my, my dad, yes, I guess, of course, yeah, uh, maths because numbers and yeah. logic and that's everything I've, that I liked up to that yeah. point but also economics yeah. and I didn't do economics GCSE as the teacher said well you don't need to you can just come in and do it for A-level and it's yeah. fine so uh, I didn't bother um, but then when I got to A-level I was like let's try economics and it was that combination of maths and logic but also real world application and yeah. at the time and I've learnt better now I used to think that economics knew 
how the world worked. And it touched so many different categories, whether it be politics, whether it be markets, all the news that you'd see on TV, economics, how businesses worked, economics underlay all of them. And I liked that insight into the functioning of the world, how the world worked. Yeah. And to do that with alongside a logical mathematical framework, I found extraordinarily interesting. So that's probably like the art and the science working yeah. together. And yeah. uh, as you said, that's that's probably how you do it. You said reading, and but, you know, uh, you, I would have thought that would have go straight to sort of some English lit sort of A-level, but that, that would never sort of crossed your mind? or uh, No, uh, a thorough inability to, to excel. <laughs> the, the, the linguistic style of writing and the creativity that's required are things that are well beyond my capabilities. Yeah. Um, I stick to logic and reasoning, and uh, I get definitely get that from my dad's side of the of the family, and that's what I found was my kind of skill set and yeah. my wheelhouse and where I was most yeah. comfortable. So off to university, mm -hmm. economics, Manchester. Obviously, I think I know why economics, but obviously, why Manchester? Well, so I've I've made a succession of decisions over the years that. In hindsight, you go, well, that's not a very good framework for making a decision. So I picked my school based on who had the best basketball facilities. Excellent. And uh, I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. Um, <laughs> I then picked my university based on where the best nightclubs were. Um, and at the time... There's a logic to all this, though, <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> so the Hacienda in Manchester was, at the time, the nightclub uh, in the country. That's got to be a separate podcast, doesn't it? Uh, well, yeah, well, I'm not sure we're allowed to talk about that podcast. Um, and so that's why I wanted to go there. Uh, unfortunately, it closed in the summer before I arrived. So oh, by the time right. I got there, it wasn't even open. Cancel the but, podcast. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but that was, the, that was the thinking behind it. It also happened to be the largest economics programme in the country. Right. And... Manchester is an amazing city. So I was interested in all that. I went, we went to visit a bunch of different universities. Yeah. The one thing our school did do was organise trips to go and see some. And Manchester was, was it was it was a proper place. Yeah. Uh, it was rather than being a countryside kind of campus, it was a real city, and that's what I wanted to be yeah. involved with. And did you gain another a, a new or a, a further network of of, of friends there mm -hmm. as well? So yes, absolutely, I did. And friends that I'm still in touch with to this day, and I'm going out with them next Thursday night, uh, a bunch of my friends from uni, but not that are professionally network related. Right. So as in, I don't, I didn't know, there was a couple of people that went from my yeah. course into the city, but very few, yeah. um, despite the fact that it was such a large program. Yeah. Do you feel you have sort of stronger connections with your school mates mm. or your sort of uh, uh, friends from that you sort of graduated with here? Um, that's a hard question to answer. They're, they're different groups of people, and it's just the way that education works, yeah. isn't it? You're you're you know at school, you're in day yeah. in day out, and yeah, you that's right. you build different that's uh, right. relationships, don't you? That's right. So what I'd say is the friends that you have in your formative years, when you're going through your teenage years, where you first start going out, meeting girls, and doing things yeah. and whatever else. Yeah. That shared experience is extraordinarily valuable and you have stories from those years yeah. that and that shared connection that you can never replace and you yeah. can never replicate. But it's not dissimilar to going to university where you're living away from home for the first yeah. time and you're going through these things and so they're just different. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say the connection was stronger or weaker in any individual group. It's that they're, they're both different and when they meet up, there's similar personalities and sense of humour and style of people. So when they all meet up, which they have done over the years, they all get on. Mm. There's no, uh, 
it, whilst they're two separate groups of friends, they are effectively uh, a, a similar kind of focus on humility and humour and yeah. uh, and just basically messing around and taking the mick out of each other. Yeah. Okay. Let's get on to uh, career in terms of you know, thinking about what you wanted to do. And did that firm up, you know, through university? I, I know. I mean, I speak to a lot of young people these days and. You know, I think I was quite lucky that from a very young age, I knew I wanted to be involved in some shape or form with the stock market, mm. whatever that meant. Yeah, yeah. And I was very purposeful in, in that respect, and I really set my path in that. But, you know, I think I was lucky on the basis that uh, I was able to do that and very lucky to continue to do that today. But that's not true for everybody. Mm. You know, I think there's that great book, uh, Range, by David Eckstein, yeah. which, which I think is is a must-read for yeah, yeah. Anyone, whether whether you're you know uh, graduating or at school or a grandparent or a parent, I think is a great book for them to read. But so, when did you sort of decide that you know actually you know this this was a role that yeah. or not a role a career yeah. that you wanted to pursue? So I at university I had a good friend called Rommel um, who his parents uh, he was from a more uh, what's the polite way of saying this. Um, <laughs> Rom, if you're listening, I'm sorry. He's got a a wealthier family, and he knew about the stock market and investing. And throughout university, uh, it was the tech boom going on at the time. Yep. So I started university in '97. Yes, okay, and so yep. we're getting into the tail end, and it was all super exciting. And he yep. was on what was called bulletin boards at the time, which is like ch internet chat yep. rooms yep. and getting stock tips. And he was buying this stuff and yep. it was going up and he was making loads of money. I was like, wow, now I didn't have any money to spend. So I couldn't buy any shares, but it was always very exciting, alluring, just outside of my range. I didn't know quite how to, what it was or how you do it or, but I knew it was interesting. I knew it was exciting and I knew it was related to economics. So I was interested and in my second year, at the end of my second year at university, I was lucky enough to get an internship at Bearings. I applied everywhere. Everyone ignored me entirely. Uh, but someone took pity on me at Bearings and said, well, you can come and open the post for a week or two. And so I did exactly that. I literally opened the post and I built them some spreadsheets because I, I, I knew a little bit about computers. And, uh, and just that simple act of being able to be there and it's it's little things. It's getting off the tube at Liverpool Street and seeing thousands of people in suits squirrelling around in different directions, like little ants go, going in every which way. And you felt like you were at the centre of something. I don't know if important is the right word, but everyone was so purposeful. Yeah, yeah. And they were all striding and, and, and busy. And I thought, well, this is, this is exciting. And the stock market was clearly on fire. And, and it was... It was quite intoxicating in some ways. Like, yeah, this is this is something I want to be involved with, and being able to sit sit there on the sidelines for a couple of weeks of the summer, and see what was involved. It was like, yeah, that's that's what I want to do. And then during the third year, there were uh, all of the big asset management companies and investment banks would come around and do their roadshows around the universities, and Manchester was one of those. So I went to uh, the the Schroders. Uh, graduate fair amongst a bunch of other companies. Uh, but the people I spoke to at Schroders were the people I thought were the nicest. They ha seemed to have the best work-life ba work balance. They seemed to be the most down-to-earth. And that appealed to me. So I applied here as long 
with a bunch of other places and was lucky enough to to get on the graduate scheme at Schroeder's. And at the end of the graduate scheme, I got the role I wanted on the team I wanted, which was to, on the, the UK equity team, which at the time was probably the biggest department at Schroeder's and the UK equity team was probably with, the most successful a, around the city. With a fantastic history as well. Absolutely right. Pedigree. I mean, Absolutely um, right. You know, and people, who were some of the names that you were sort of yeah. joined in those days? So Ben Whitmore and Nick Purvis were the yep. two people who I would shout out in particular, mm -hmm. who were my kind of intellectual teachers. And again, I was more like a voyeur. There was no formal learning mm. program. You just sit there and you watch. And yep. that's extraordinarily beneficial. I had a three-year effectively front row ticket to yep. watch how to run money through the very end of a bull market yep. and then watch it through a bear market and see the pressures that people, yep. without having any skin in the game at all, because I wasn't running any money, seeing how the pressures bear out onto a team, onto a style, and just being able to see that was, again, extremely fortunate. I think we'll come back to that because I think in a post-COVID world, yeah, yeah. remote working, working from yeah, home. Yeah. That's totally right. Something's missing there, isn't it, in yeah, that yeah. respect. That's something that you know I share with you that that's how I learned just yeah, by looking. And yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly through the 90s in particular with one crisis after another, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, there was plenty of learning to be done. Um, you said your brother's in the industry. So yes. what does what does brother's brother do? So my brother Dermot uh, works for Jupiter, right. um, and he does pretty much the exact same job as I do. Um, right. He's don't tell uh, me he's a growth manager though. <laughs> no, no, no. He's a UK value manager right. at Jupiter. Yeah. So he, um, when he graduated, he became a professional rugby player to start with, but yeah. always knew that that was like that's not a lifetime job. That is a, a job you do until you're not able to do it anymore. And so he was doing CFA in the evenings and weekends alongside that so that he had a plan B. And then when injuries and whatnot got in the way of his rugby career, um, he then decided to pivot into the city and managed to get a job at Jupiter, well, Fidelity originally, initially, I should say, and then uh, at Jupiter um, alongside uh, Ben Whitmore running the value strategies at uh, Jupiter. Uh, oh, I'm not allowed to say any of those things. I don't think. <laughs> I, I, um, I was at Henderson, and when I was at Henderson, I worked with Joe Curtis, another value manager. Yes, uh, his brother Charlie, uh, also a fund manager, but he was a growth manager. And uh -huh. uh, I always thought that Curtis and Curtis, you know, would, yeah. would probably uh, be a good investment uh, management of obviously, you know, uh, funds for all seasons in in, the, in that respect. Um, let's move on now to perhaps sort of. More of the, the characteristics in which I see that successful fund managers uh, have, and I, I, I think that from my experience of doing this job for almost 40 years, I think I can sort of roll them up into perhaps five things that they have in common, and that's definitely intuition, humility, patience or persistence, if you want to, to, to call it that, and, uh, and attention to detail. And as a result of that, I put together, well, when I say I put together um, an acronym, which I have to basically acknowledge, and, and and he always tells me off because I never acknowledge him. But there's uh, Simon Simon Hildry, who's a colleague of mine at Lion Trust. He's the the chief marketing officer, and uh, knowing I'm a Spurs fan, he put together the the Spurs acronym for what I saw in in what I felt was successful for managing their characteristics. So, uh, spelling out Spurs being stamina, process, understanding, resoluteness, and stimulus, and I thought we would run through them with yourself. So we're going to start with stamina, and that's all about patience, persistence. You know, this is very much a, an attribute that I know you share. But, you know, um, if you remember that um, 
you you kindly joined me just shortly before the pandemic. It was hmm. February 2020. Uh, we shared a stage at our Meet the Manager event at uh, Simpsons on the Strand there. We were joined that day by uh, Chris Injun, who, uh, yep. uh, a, a, again, a UK equities manager, but a growth manager. Almost we tried to sort of bill it as a bit of a boxing match, you know, yep. in the red corner, here's Kevin yep. representing value and uh, uh, and Chris in the blue corner representing growth. It, it, indeed, it was, a, it was an interesting event and there was a lot of commonality. And uh, if you remember, you, you shared two or three stocks in common, but your reason and rationale for, for getting there was was, was different. But uh, anyway, I, I asked you a, a question that day and, um, uh, you know, uh, and I'm going to remind you of the answer. I asked you a question about, uh, you know, value is underperformed for a period of time. What do you see as the the sort of catalyst that that can kickstart a, a recovery in value investing? And your answer was as follows. And I'm going to have to read this out because uh, uh, the memory is fading a bit. Anyway, people will claim that there is a catalyst. It may be interest rates or GDP going up, but I fundamentally don't believe that is to be the case. All we can say is that value versus growth is one of the most extreme readings ever. And that means, I believe, there is some latent performance built up within uh, the value-based strategy for those willing to be patient. Do you know what happened next? <laughs> it was pretty brutal what happened yeah, next. Yeah. You know, lockdown came along. Yeah. And uh, yes, there was certainly some some value there because, yeah. you know, uh, basically value sold off by a further 25%. So if it was cheap, then it yeah. got very, very cheap. Can you remember your reaction to that event, and you know what goes through your your mind and your you know your your process and your thinking about that? I do remember, and I, I think the entire team will remember for till their dying day. And it was extraordinarily a tough environment. So 2019 had been a hard year in particular to be a value manager. And value's been under pressure for a while, and people will show you charts showing that from 2009 onwards that it had been under pressure. And we'd managed to offset the vast majority of that through stock selection, and we'd done a reasonable job as a team navigating those markets. But 2019 was brutal, and there was no place to hide. So as we come into 2020, as you correctly say, the readings on the value versus growth made us confident that, yes, 2019 has been bad, but there, there's an opportunity here. Yeah. Absolutely, there's an opportunity here. And then we could see the pandemic coming because it was just a question of maths, quite simply. As soon as you knew it was in Europe, as soon as the ski resorts had it, and as soon as people were, the average person was giving it to six other people, yeah. you didn't have to be a genius in maths to understand compounding and realise yeah. There's no escape from it. You just had to avoid Cheltenham. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if they weren't going to shut the borders, then yeah. I'm afraid it's yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. And so we could see it coming and we knew that it was likely to lead to an economic downturn of some description. Now, previously, what has happened in economic downturns is people panic initially, they sell out of value stocks, but then from before the, the peak of the, uh, the actual economic impact, they, they find a bottom and they start to improve because they've got, tend to have reasonable balance sheets, they're short duration assets with high income yields and whatever it might be. And it's the expensive stuff that really comes under pressure um, as you go through those environments. So you have a shakeout, uh, a changing leadership in the market. And that's exactly what we thought we would, have, would happen in 2020. And March, as we went through March, it didn't happen. April didn't happen. May didn't happen. And the growth stocks just kept on going. Mm. And... I think the performance of the fund started to turn around in June, July um, for for our strategies. But it was a brutal period where things that we owned that were cheap just got cheaper. And 
people left, right and center were just giving up on the premise that valuation as a strategy would ever work again. And to withstand that pressure was extraordinarily difficult, mm. extraordinarily difficult. So but what did you rely on? What did you sort of, you know, stick to there? What, what, was, yeah. the, what was the... Well, we're fortunate in that we have a team built for a reason. One of the premises of the team, and we put together the team in 2013, actually, yeah. the founding, founding of the teams in 2013, was exactly to give emotional and psychological support when times were tough. Because yeah. you can be a, a, a value manager scattered around the business, but if you're surrounded by growth managers and they're all making out like bandits and, and performing extraordinarily well, and you're not, it's a really tough, difficult spot to be in. How difficult was it to get that off the ground though. Yeah, really hard. Because, as far as I can see, it's the only, yeah. if we could call it a franchise, yeah, it's yeah. the only franchise within Schroders yeah, today. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's turned out to be a great decision, as yeah. you said, because it provided you that protection, didn't yeah. it, really, at the end of the day? 100%. You know, and, it, and it, it's one of those things that I very much sort of look for, which is real clarity in process. You yeah. know, there's a label, that's what it says, look yeah. on the tin, yeah. look what it says it does, open yeah. it up, there it is. You know, yeah, yeah. there's nothing different about it. Yeah, that's right. So uh, it was quite difficult. It required a, a bit of luck, as these things always yeah. do, and some uh, a, a bit of good fortune in terms of timing. So Peter Harrison, who's now our CEO, had just become head of equities. And uh, Nick and I went, Nick Kirridge and I went to him with some with the idea to bring us all together. So there was five UK, uh, sorry, three UK equity managers, one European and one global. We said we should be a team, and these are the benefits. And here's the value versus growth chart, and it's about, yeah. <laughs> and it's already looking quite extreme. Back in 2013, yeah. <laughs> it's about to turn. Why don't we get involved? Yeah. And of course, a that didn't happen. Uh, 2013 wasn't the bottom, and we carried on until 2020. But the premise for the team wasn't just to to benefit when if turn, things turned. It was to protect us if things were bad. And yeah. so it wasn't a straightforward thing, but uh, we were able to do it with Peter's help. And over that sort of ten year period, has, has that ever has that ever been questioned? Has that ever been sort of a, a doubt, or was that? I mean, no, I would no. have said it's panned out rather well. So. Yeah, yeah. So no, no questions, no doubts. We clearly in what we do as a team, and one of the features of the team is and a common thread between each of the members of the team is a focus on continual learning, a focus on getting better, a desire to to have some intellectual humility to say, we're not perfect, we do make mistakes, but let's learn from them. You yeah. can make them once and that's fine, just don't make them again. And 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 we've built a process around designing, designed to do exactly that. But it means the process iterates consistently over time. But it also means in 2019, 2020, when in fact it was 2020, summer of 2020, when things were being very harsh, we had a full drains up review, every member of the team looking at every stage of the process going, what are the intellectual gaps? What are the issues here? Where are we? Where could we be wrong? What mistakes could we be making? What do we need to do mm. or should we do to be able to protect our clients? Uh, and, and it was always a client focus, protect our clients from the market or, uh, and whatever else might be going yeah. on. I should say that, you know, using the word stamina, using the word patience and persistence, mm. particularly if you've been an investor in your value strategies, you know, three years and three months ago, if you start with it, you've got a positive return yeah. today, which yeah. is, uh, uh, which, which comes through. So, it, you know, John, that's uh, extraordinarily, that's a, 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 
an extremely important point for us to make is that the only reason we could do it was because of the balance. Yeah. So we had sold, we never sold short-term performance. We never said, look at these numbers, aren't they yeah. amazing? We always sat in front of people and said, here's the process. Here's what it has delivered. It won't always deliver that. But if you like the process, yeah. let's let's form a partnership. Yeah. Yeah. And it meant that we have an extremely good long-term client base. And during that period of 2019, 2020, we weren't hit with mass redemptions. We didn't have to churn the portfolios. Yeah. We didn't have to fundamentally change things to try and shore anything up because ultimately the clients got what they thought they were going to get. They might not have liked it, but they got what they thought they mm. were going to get. Uh, and that's extremely important. I think we've sort of drifted into PIVA process already. Oh, and, uh, it's, that's fine. I mean, I'm a, I'm a firm belief, believer uh, that um, short-term performance is you know, simply not, not repeatable, but sticking to what you know, sticking to process over the long term produces the results for you. And in terms of that sticking to process, you, you know, the, the foundation, as we've already talked about, is value. Uh, and... I suppose a foundation, when we think of value management, it's just buying cheap stocks to some extent. And uh, I remember exploring this with you before uh, at that, that time at, at Simpsons. That, uh, uh, But over sort of that 10-year period, you know, there have been plenty of uh, value managers who have folded over that period of time. Or worse still, plenty of value managers who have said, I can't take this anymore. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to start buying some of these yeah. growthy things, which is in my book, even worse to some extent, yeah. you know, that style drift. But, you know, uh, what have you been able to do perhaps differently from from them to, let's call it, stay in the game? Yeah. Well, I, that's a difficult one because we can't, it's difficult for me to comment yeah. on what other people have done. Yeah. And I heard recently from a, a presentation at the London Value Conference that one, uh, an individual who I have utmost respect for said, all value managers during 2019, 2020, either tweaked their process to enable them to buy the tech stuff or they got fired. Yeah, And we didn't tweak the process and we didn't get fired. So we definitely did something yeah. in a way that others in the industry don't and or didn't because a lot of our competitors either got fired or retired during that period. And there is very few true value managers left either in the UK or in the other jurisdictions we look at with the exception of the US, which is uh, more value focused. But all I can say is that we we have a process set up, we have a team set up to di to try and deliver that consistency of approach, and and we were able to 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 maintain that throughout the period. But um, what what was different about that compared to others? Maybe it was about just being together with like-minded individuals that gave us that kind of cloud cover. But I, I guess there's also two other factors: the environment that we that we work in. We are not the majority of Schroeder's assets by any stretch of the imagination. And so we were, uh, there was less corporate pressure on us to be able to, to have to do X, Y, Z because we were more insulated, but also that client piece. And because the clients didn't panic, we were okay. I mean, we're talking about sticking to what you know, uh, sticking to a consistent process, but markets change, economies mm. change. Yep. They're evolving all the time. I'm pretty sure the stocks in your portfolio uh, you had 10 years ago are going to be and the sectors, I assume, uh, are going to be different yep. or to do all them today. So how does the process evolve in that way, uh, but at the same time stick to uh, maintain you know, your core philosophy, yeah, yeah. your core belief? Yeah. How does it evolve? Because surely it doesn't just sit still, <clears throat> does it? Quite right. Um, so we were looking at this for another reason, actually, the other day. And 
uh, Roberta, uh, one of the team members, uh, counted up all the different iterations there have been of our model. And I built the model for the team in 2014. And since then, there's been 47 different iterations she could count with little tweaks. Uh, this I've, is the screen, is it? Yeah. It's not the screen. It's the financial model that we build. Okay. So we unified the model in 2014, taking the best bits of each individual's models, uh, because up to that point, we all just built our own, bashed them all together, took the best of the best, created what we... Uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek called one true model and then since then we've just gradually iterated it taking stuff out that people didn't need bring stuff in fix mistakes fix uh focus other areas that people felt were important but in particular our strategy isn't the same strategy as as many other investors lots of investors are looking to find the best companies mm -hmm. in the world or uh the even to find the best value stocks and our process is around not doing that. It's around getting rid of the worst ones, the value traps at the bottom. And because of that, we can learn all the time by stripping out and learning from the data and going, there was another value trap, there's another mistake, what can we learn from that? And we store every single decision that we make, not just the things we buy, which is the data series that most people have, but also the things that we didn't buy. And so that allows us to go back and then with hindsight say, why didn't we buy that? What was our share price target? What did we think was going to happen? What happened? And learn from that. Mm -hmm. And then when we get that data out of the end, we can then go, well, actually, to try and protect ourselves from that mistake again, or to try and ensure that we don't get rid of that those cohort of stocks that we got rid of in 2015, 2016, and went on to be very good, let's change the focus of the model. Let's, let's update line 312 or whatever it is, and make sure that it, it better reflects our current thinking. Mm -hmm. And and we do that on a small iterative process all the time, just trying to get better and better over the years. I mean, that is um, the third letter for me. Oh, sorry. Understanding. <laughs> I mean, uh, which is good because you know there is a logic to it, hopefully, uh, yeah. and a logic that that uh, that, we're, that we're running through here. The, that understanding, which is obviously the knowledge, experience, uh, and also how you sort of collaborate with with colleagues. I, I want to take you back to 2013. You and Nick, yeah. you go to Peter and say, you know, please, can we have this team? He says yes. You go, oh, my God, but now we've now <laughs> got to put something together now. Yeah. Um, and I'm just thinking about you know, that part where you go, right, well, how do we put this together? What is... You've got the process, but what's the right culture? What's the right environment? And, you know, how do you go about, you know, selecting the right people for it? Well, values are quite a self-selecting group yeah. anyway. So we... They, but you've got to create a culture yeah. for that group as well. You know, yeah. you know, is is it rock music in the background, <laughs> or uh, you know, do the do do the walls have to be painted a particular colour? I mean, I'm being facetious, but yeah. you know, there is a there has to be some environment and culture that you want yeah. to create because yeah. I'm, I'm not sure that all value managers are equal, yeah. are they? Yeah. So we, from day one, just wanted to be the best that we could be. Everyone on the team has a more of a science background, a logic background, and so we believe in the data. And back then, it was quite difficult to get good data, and it's much easier nowadays. Mm -hmm. We have better access to data um, and better computer systems that can, can query it and learn from. But it was that focus, and if we were to talk about a culture of the team, is that pursuit of, I want to say pursuit of excellence, but that excellence is something you can never achieve. It's always just, let's get a bit better today, tomorrow, this month, this year. Just that continual focus on what can we do differently that will make us better investors? 
is it sort of a, a leadership model within the team that people lead with their strengths and you allow other people to lead with their strengths? Is, is that the way it operates? How, how do yeah. you collaborate together? Well, we try to be... Uh, to operate totally as equals, that whilst Nick and I are normally head of the team, if you came to any team meeting, you you wouldn't know that. Well, I hope you wouldn't know that. Um, every voice is equal. Everyone's opinions as valid as anybody else's. Mm. Everyone on the team is an analyst and a fund manager. Um, we don't have any hierarchy at all. Everyone's totally responsible for their own portfolios and to their own clients. Who doesn't matter who it is, what jurisdiction they're operating in. Them and their co-man all funds are co-managed. So them and their co-manager. They're responsible. They make their decisions. They're accountable, and they learn their own lessons. And and but they everyone operates within the framework of the process that we've built as well. So you have autonomy within certain tram lines, and uh, but you have a process because ultimately the team needs to have a an ethos or a, an underlying uh, consistency. So if a client is buying one of our UK funds and then says, "I'm interested in a European fund." They can do that knowing that they're going to get a similar mm -hmm. strategy, a similar style, even though the individuals running it might be different. Does that mean that groupthink is almost encouraged? <laughs> well, uh, there's only one answer to that because groupthink is <laughs> such, such a negative connotation. Correct. That's I can't, right. I, just I, said, I can't say yeah. yes. Yeah, it's just, uh, but, it, but is groupthink encouraged? Because, yeah. because, you know, you do want to stick to a process. And with, yeah. you know, your universe of okay. stocks is yeah. pretty yeah. sort of constrained, isn't yeah. it, really? Yeah, yeah. That you're not, you're fishing in a pond, yeah. which is yeah. very easy to see, isn't yeah. it? So we are very cognizant that. Certainly until the middle of last decade, 2015 or so, the, the majority of the people on the team were Schroeder graduates, male, and had similar-ish backgrounds. Like, not exactly the same, but certainly all, all went to university, yeah. etc. And we were very firmly wanted to ensure that whilst that we had diversity of thought, but within, as you say, a, a, a set core belief yep. in value. You have to believe in value. And once you believe in value, you're welcome to the team. But, and you can think about other things in any way you want. But if you don't believe in value and you're going to come to the team and say, what about we do this growth thing? Yeah. I'm afraid that but, that's yeah, just not going to work. <laughs> exactly. So we've recruited uh, people from all around the world. Yeah. Juan, who normally chairs the, runs the podcast, for, as an example, emerging market manager. Uh, Vera um, from, um, from Russia. Uh, and a variety of other people with different backgrounds, different experiences to try and increase that diversity of thought, but clearly with that one North Star of, I believe in value first, mm. and then you can believe whatever else you want after that. Yeah. Can we come back to that point about remote working, working from home, yeah, yeah. and how, you know, I wholly agree with it, how I learned, you learned yeah. from others, and watching. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, and yeah. uh, watching other people make mistakes is better than making your own, yeah, yeah. of course. How difficult has that been over the last sort of, Two to three years. So, uh, yeah, it has definitely been a challenge. So I should have said challenge and not difficult and problem because, oh, because yeah. we like the positive ones, don't we? <laughs> I didn't even think of it. But yeah, the, it's, it's, it's not straightforward. And I think that the, the issues won't fully reveal themselves until we're slightly further down the line because the, the gap in particular is for the younger people coming through and the lessons that they're not, haven't been able to learn. And, and so, and you don't realize that and you don't appreciate that until you get to the stage where you needed to have that lesson. And, and so there's definitely some pent up issues. Um, but as a team, we 
as I say, all portfolios are co-managed. And so co-managers stayed in daily contact with each other. As a wider team, that's been harder because as a team of 10, 11 investors, you can't be on the phone all the time. And we've all been on those Zoom calls where people are talking over each other and it's quite awkward. And mm. and I, in particular, I don't particularly enjoy those uh, for a variety of different reasons. Um, but we've encouraged people to come back into the office on a Monday and Wednesday rather than saying two days a week you pick them, say all the team meetings are on Mondays and Wednesdays. You can choose to access them remotely if you want to, but it's encouraged if you'd mm -hmm. like to come in to to be part of those and to do them face-to-face -face and to have that central contact uh, at least once a week to try and bring the sub-teams together. But it's it's not straightforward because we, we want autonomy in the team. We don't want to tell people, you have to do this. Mm -hmm. Our team is a team of contrarians that... When you tell people they have to do something, everyone rebels against that immediately, including myself. And so you, we just try to lead by example and try and encourage people to to work together. And Charlotte, who's the newest member of the team, who's the new graduate, we have just put together a program of, of learning for her where she will spend a month with each shadowing each individual person on the team where there's a set learning profile, a set stock to look at with specific learning objectives so that she understands exactly how to go through and analyze a company. And she doesn't have to be in the office mm. five days a week when she's shadowing someone, but there is at least those objectives are there to learn from and to follow and, and hopefully mm. to, to close some of those gaps that might be missed. I suppose elsewhere. we could make that link back to what you said about learning at school and learning at uh, university as well in terms of that sort of you know being self-motivated yeah. in that respect as well. So there is that link there. Let's turn to resoluteness, which is all about, you know, uh, Courage, conviction, determination, that uh, decides just plenty of which uh, I think we've already already discussed. And, uh, you know, there is uh, plenty of evidence, academic and in terms of the outperformance of, of value, and it, mm. it does come with a cost. It, you know, yep. it, it happens over the long term. There are shorter term periods, medium term periods of underperformance. And, you know, as we've already discussed, it can come with some extreme periods of uh, uh, volatility. And, uh, you know, post the global financial crisis, as, as you said, until more recently, it's all been about large cap growth. It's taken all the prizes, and at, at times it must have been sort of a, a quite a lonely place for for value managers in in that respect. So, you know, those factors. What what, is, what for you in terms of the challenges to sort of maintaining that res, uh, resoluteness? What what have you what have you been doing? Uh, do you think in terms of uh, you know uh, t taking on board those challenges? I think you know we talked about the the franchise, which has certainly yeah. helped in that yeah. respect. But you know, is there anything else about you think about the personality of yourself? Yeah, maybe the team, yeah. or you know, it's yeah. as you said, you know, perhaps it is the fact that you're all in it together. So I think it's a, a couple of things. The first is the team tends to be more scientifically minded, more logical yeah. minded, and and the data is very clear, but it's, it's not just a, it's not just something you can backtest and say, and that, that uh, yeah. it works. Yeah. It's the logic behind why it works, why valuation is the best predictor of future returns, just simply logically is persuasive to me. And so if there was data that came in tomorrow that was backtested that said, all you have to do is buy stocks beginning with an A. Mm. Like I would, I would really struggle with that because there's no logic behind yeah. it. Whereas for value, it's got the track record and it's got the logic. And and so for me, I find that very persuasive. And and that is replicated across the team. Uh, but 
we're also extraordinarily stubborn people on our team <laughs> to a degree that's perhaps slightly unhealthy at times. But it means that it's very difficult to, once our mind is made up, to persuade us to the contrary, particularly when there's a large body of evidence behind it. And as a consequence, during those dark days, like there was no swaying that belief in that one North Star. It will come. It will just, it's going to be a little bit painful until it comes. And and that's why it will come is because other people won't be able to withstand the course and will be blown off uh, off stream or whatever it might be. And like, but we have no choice. It is our job for our clients to do this. And so we get up and we mm. go again. And, mm. uh, Does that stubbornness it must lead to some disagreements within the team? So how do you handle that? Uh, yeah. So. The first thing to say is we're, everyone's allowed to disagree. There's no issue with disagreeing. You're in charge of your own portfolio. You, If someone likes a stock and someone doesn't, as long as it's in your portfolio and, and not in theirs, there's no problem. Like no, There's yep. no mandated stock list that you have to buy or anything like that. People are responsible and accountable for their own performance. The more difficult ones are when it's around suggestions around process and what can or should be done to change. Um, but the answer is we because we're all logically minded, data will win the day. And uh, and if we can't prove something to sufficiently strongly to persuade people of the merits that, uh, that I don't know what it might be, whatever the case is, then then it's not. If it can't be persuaded, if people can't be persuaded, then we don't do it. Mm. And once there's sufficient data or evidence, one way or the other, then we'll make a change. And. Uh, the fact is, ultimately, today we've got a good process. What we don't want to do is to to throw that out with the bathwater. We need to make sure that the changes we make are iterative and uh, and are positive, in, moving in the right direction. And but rather than large jumps and and, and whole scale changes, it's just that constant iteration. And as a consequence we tend not to have large disagreements because ultimately we can make a small change, and if it doesn't work, we can roll it back. Um, I want to move on to the the last factor, which is uh, which is stimulus and and uh, yeah, incentives is one thing, but really what I want to talk about is 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 motivation, motivation to perform, mm. motivation to succeed. I mean, certainly that in my experience that the more successful fund managers, you know, it certainly goes way beyond economic incentives in that way. I just wonder where your motivation comes from. You know, have you got some? point to prove or some score to settle where's your motivation to succeed coming from uh well i think it's just a fundamentally inherent competitiveness that uh, i like i i'm the one of the very few people i've ever met that love exams i've always loved exams i love the challenge i love uh, the revision i love the focus i love the deadline i love the working up to it i love the pressure and I love then, and I've been very lucky. Every exam I've sat, I've done quite reasonably well in. And as a consequence, maybe there's not been that negative lesson that I need to ultimately learn. Did you pass your driving test first time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there we go. Yeah. Well, there we are. <laughs> so, there's nothing you failed at. Uh, no, I've definitely Swimming failed at plenty. Of... Come on, bro, give me, just give us something. <laughs> <I've> <laughs> prove you're human. <laughs> I've definitely failed at plenty of things. They just didn't happen to be tests. So. Um, uh, so yeah, just that competitiveness, that competitive streak in me means that I just want at the end of my career to to walk away and say I did a good job for my clients. Yeah. And we're fortunate 
uh, in some regards, I mean, that, that might seem like a strange thing. At the end of every single day, there's a league table that tells me how I did against my competitors yeah. every single day. And some people can't live with that pressure. Yeah. It's very difficult. And I don't look at it every single day, of course. I, one of the odd things and the ironies about the stock market is to do well over the long term, you have to yeah. ignore the short term. Yeah. And so I don't look at it every day. I don't look at it every week. But um, when it gets sent around on a monthly or quarterly basis, you check and you see how, how you're getting on. Uh, but it's that ultimately mm. that since inception number have we done for our clients that uh, I'm focused on, and ultimately I don't really care what the scale of the assets is. I don't. I'm not interested in saying oh, I ran the most money or uh, we were the the most important people yeah. at, at Schroders or wherever else, and or my job title was X Y Z. You know, I, I I don't care about any of those things in any way, shape, or form. Just want to do a good job, be the best I can be. Now, I read on the internet, so it can't be true. <laughs> but I read it was either yourself, most likely Nick, who said, you know, that you, you want to get a, a track record of 25 years on a, on a fund. Is that something that is is an ambition of yours in terms of that long term? Because that, that really is proof, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so they say more than 10 years is required. And yeah. we've got, we were fortunate to be given our first uh, product back in 2006. So we're well through the 10 years now. And we've got a good track record. And once every incremental year is data, but I don't think anyone's going to be persuaded and go, well, after 24 years, I'm afraid you haven't got enough data yet. And after 25, yeah, now you're the map. Yeah. Now you've got it's, a, it's that uh, luck versus skill, isn't it? Yeah, that's and, right. And, you know, and, that, you know. and there's very few people, and we do think about survivorship bias all the time. So when you, if you looked at the, I'm going to say this, and JT, you can, <laughs> we look at data all the time. And when you look at the all companies index, there's currently 230 odd members of that. But if I look over the last decade, how many people, how many funds have been in there? There's been 542 different portfolios within the all company sector for the, over the last decade. Yeah. And how many of those have had a manager, for, consistent manager for that 10 year period? Like a handful, or mm. hardly any. Yeah. And so just getting to that, getting to that, uh, that decade, you know, is great. And, and we're well through that for all the portfolios that we, we look at now in the UK. Now you can see some of the challenges being a fund selector. Yeah, so, yeah, it's really hard. You know, because that's what you're looking for. Yeah. I, I just want to ask one more question on this, which is, uh, I think it's something that is not is a, is a challenge, particularly for, for listed companies, which is that always that conflict between asset gathering mm. and asset management. And yeah. um, I suppose, again, with, with the franchise around you, that gives you some protection. But you know, how is that how is that handled here um the reality is uh i don't I d it's not handled at all i don't i'm not focused on the assets at all uh really um we are fortunate in that we have a good book of business already we don't need to win assets to to be profitable and uh the uk products are well, one of them's at capacity and one of them has a bit to go but we don't need to raise any more money and and my focus has always been on just doing the best job we can for our existing clients. And if other people want to come along for the journey, great. And if they don't, then that's totally up to them. We've always been very honest about what we can deliver for our clients. And and when we sit in front of new clients, we don't say, look at this chart with mm. performance from the bottom left to the top right. Mm. Aren't we amazing? We simply say, here's our process. It's either something you're interested in or you're not. And if they're not, no harm, no foul. Like that's Everyone's entitled to go and find a different way to run money and to do a different thing or find a different fund manager. That is absolutely fine. Our job is not to find all the clients, it's to find the clients who are willing to give us 10, 20, 30, whatever the right percentage of their money is, and for us to then run it 
in an explicit valuation-based style, and then they can blend us with other people, and and, and that's great, and uh, we're very happy for them. Uh, but ultimately, the asset gathering side can be done by other people in the business. Well, I mean, as ever, I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, chatting to you, Kevin, and uh, uh, I'm very grateful for your uh, openness um, you shared today with me. I'm going to ask you one more question, which uh, perhaps <laughs> uh, again takes you back, perhaps you know, uh, to something a bit more personal again, but. Perhaps for just a bit of fun, in terms of away from the office, yeah. uh, having a day off of work, you know, either with friends or family, what would be your perfect day out? Uh, well, uh, it would start with some sunshine. It would start <laughs> with the kids behaving themselves. And both of those things in the UK is pretty rare. But if we had both of those things, it really doesn't matter what you're doing. But there are times and there are moments when you're either... Uh, uh, on a ski slope or somewhere like that where you're high up in the mountains, the sky's blue and the snow's perfect when you're as a, with a family and skiing together and it's, it's, it's magical. And it's genuinely surrounded by the beauty of the Alps or whatever, the Pyrenees or wherever you might be. And it's absolutely amazing. So those are good moments. Or it might be floating in the sea, uh, jumping in off a boat or something or a dock and with a barbecue in the background and a, a beer in your hand and... Uh, but so the extremes of snow or <laughs> or a barbecue in, uh, by the sea, but um, something as long as the kids are behaving and the sun's shining, those are the those are the key features. Sounds great to me. Thank you very much, Kevin. Cool. Thank you, John. Pleasure.